Hello, and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in whenever you're tuning in. You might be a Patreon subscriber, which means you're tuning in at a day early and ad-free. That's one of the bonuses if you join up at patreon.com slash willosophy. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash willosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y. And you can join there for as little as a US dollar per month. Is the US still a thing? I don't know. I haven't checked Twitter for 12 minutes, but uh, you can join up. It's like crowdfunding for the podcast. It means I can pay Podcast Mike, who puts all these podcasts together. And of course, uh, the fabulous James Fosdyke, who does all the original artwork for the episodes. So we have a little fundraiser going there. Maybe this is your first episode. Maybe you've just tuned in. Maybe it's not your first episode and you hear me banging on about this every fucking week. Well, there's one good way to stop me banging on about this, which is on Patreon, we're trying to get to $5,000 per month. And if if we get to $5,000 per month, that enables us budget-wise. Uh, obviously, it'd be great if it was more than that, but that is our minimum for being able to do two episodes of this show per week. And in 2021... We'd like to do two episodes a week more often than we don't. That's our aim for the year, but we need to get to 5000 on the Patreon to be able to afford to do that. We're close, but we're not quite there yet. So that will mean uh, a catch-up episode like this with a previous Velocity guest per week and a brand new episode with a brand new Velocity guest per week. That is the aim. But in the meantime, one episode per week. And this is a catch-up episode with Jan Fran, who's been on the show a few times before. Uh, I think uh, people will know how much of a fan I am of Jan's work. If you follow me online, you're constantly seeing me retweet her France and her takes on things and her appearances on shows. She's always the star of everything that she goes on, Jan Fran. And I had this chat with her a couple of weeks ago when she was in lockdown quarantine in Sydney. So we got a little insight into what it was like to be locked down in quarantine in the middle of a pandemic. Now for Listeners, I know we have listeners all over the world, and some of you have had nothing but basically lockdown and quarantine for, you know, most of last year and looking for a lot of this year as well. And I just, you know, my my sincerest um, uh, empathies, I don't even know what the right word is anymore. Words seem meaningless for those who are going such through such extreme things and the toll that is taking on you physically and mentally. Just be kind to yourself and be kind to each other. Uh, here in Australia, um, I've been toying around with the idea of when I will start doing live performances again. A lot of people have been already doing them and I was really unsure, to be honest. I'll be completely honest with you. I just didn't know. I didn't know a what I would say when I got back on stage. All the material that I was going to do in 2020 suddenly seemed so irrelevant but also just in a real sense of what is my contribution to a broader society. I did not want to be in a situation where I was suddenly putting on a show, you know, for a thousand people and getting them in a room and with all the dangers and risks that that involves. I felt like I did not want to selfishly do anything that would put anyone else in harm's way. So just this week, an opportunity arose for me, which was my local community theatre, which is a place in Brunswick Heads, which Brunswick Heads is just a small town in northern New South Wales, if you don't know, of about 1,800 people. And that's my local theatre, the Brunswick Picture House. People may have seen me do shows at the Brunswick Picture House previously as a guest before I was living in the area, but now is my local theatre. And I love the guys who, uh, uh, and when I say guys, I love all the people who uh, work there and put those shows on. And unfortunately, they had to cancel a whole bunch of their summer programming because 
of the travel restrictions around Australia, the comedians that were going to have performing were not able to go over state borders to come and perform. And so an opportunity arose, basically, which was I saw an opportunity to do a small show in a COVID-safe way. I live in an area that, you know, Touchwood has been reasonably untouched by the pandemic. And, you know, the Brunswick Picture House have been running COVID-safe shows for... For, you know, months now, they've put in new outdoor area, they've reduced the size, they're doing everything that they, um, you know, should do and uh, can do to make sure that everybody in the area is safe. And so I've decided that that will be me dipping my toe back into the world of live performance. So on the 23rd of January and the 30th of January, the night before my 47th birthday, uh, you can come see me do my What You Talking About Wheel Show. Now, if you don't know what my What You Talking About Wheel Shows are, that is basically 60 to 80 minutes of completely improvised stand-up comedy. So I talk to the audience. I just empty out what's in my head. Um, some of it's good. Some of it's terrible. Uh, you know, but that's the nature of the shows. They're really fun shows. Uh, I actually, Here's what I will say. I've never fucking done one after 10 months of not performing. So when I go on stage on the 23rd, it'll be over 10 months since I've been on a stage in front of people doing comedy of any form. And I'm going to go up without a script. And I'm going to see what's in my head. I mean, it's been a big year. I imagine that I'm going to have plenty to say. I have no idea what it is that's going to come out. Some of it, you know, once it's come out, I might think, oh, that should have stayed in there. And it may never, ever come out again. So the 23rd will be the night to be there for good or bad to see me uh, try it again after 10 months and see what comes out in an improvised show, I think will be a really fun night to be involved in. But the 23rd and the 30th. At this stage, no other plans to do live work, but this is me, you know, dipping my toe back in in a safe way, helping the local community. And uh, I guess if these shows sell well, you know, if we sold both of the shows out, then um, obviously, you know, maybe that's something that I could look at doing more regularly there at the Brunswick Picture House, maybe do a monthly show or anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I like the idea of being able to do something like that in my own local community. So if you're in the area and it is safe to you, safe for you to come to a show and you feel like coming to a show, uh, those shows will be on sale. And, you know, if you're hearing this on the Sunday on Patreon, they're probably not up yet. But if you're hearing this on Monday everywhere else, then uh, those shows are probably on sale already. So if you want to come and see me do what you're talking about, Will, at the Brunswick Picture House, they are the details. This is Jan Fran. I love Jan Fran. Uh, check out her France. Check out everything that she writes online. Uh, an incredible thinker, super funny, um, great conversationalist. Loved everything about this. Hope you do too. This is Jan Fran. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, returning guest. This knows how the show starts. The show starts as someone informed me the same way as Stan Grant is starting his uh, one plus one episodes on the ABC. And uh, if bloody Stan Grant stole that from listening to this podcast, then he's going to be in real trouble with whoever I stole it from. I don't know who I stole it from, but I can't imagine I'm the first person who's ever done it. So I'm going to ask my guests who they are. Who are you? Oh, hello. I'm Jan Fran. I'm a um, journalist and TV presenter, I guess, 
internet commentator. You know what? The last time you asked me this question, <laughs> I also had this much trouble answering it. And it's good to know that things have not changed in 12 to 18 months. There you go. Journalist and TV presenter. Let's go with that. Have any of those things moved around in order of priority this year? Because this has been a year, I know from my own personal experience, where the thing that was going to be my number one priority, which was my stand-up tour, went out the window. So then other things that I could still do had to become priorities, like the relentless amount of episodes that people have heard of this fucking podcast that I can do from my (laughs) office and not leaving the house. So has there been a reordering in your priorities this year? Um, You know what? They all just kind of stayed there but they sort of all shrunk a little bit I think what does that mean well I was probably doing because just like a bunch of tv work kind of dropped off a little bit because people weren't shooting as much um I feel like I was doing a, a bit more work for the guardian last year as well sorry this year 2020 and that kind of dropped off a little bit too because we weren't sure whether we were shooting in the office or we weren't sure whether I could do it from home and so that paused for a little bit of a, of a few months so I've kind of been doing everything that I'd been doing in 2019 but just on a slightly weirder scale so they're all right. still We like there. what you're doing. Could you just dial it down a little? Yeah, exactly. Just make it a little bit smaller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we want that, but just like knock the edge off a bit. No worries. Yeah. That's kind of what happened. Yeah, we want that, but could you film that in your toilet instead of our TV studio? Oh, dude, I had to film stuff in, in my home. And I, you know, I, sort of, I make videos where I need a white wall sometimes in the background. And we had to rearrange all of the furniture to get the largest, whitest wall that I possibly could in my two-bedroom apartment. And then you notice, like, I've never noticed stains on my wall more (laughs) than what I noticed when I came to film them with a high-definition camera. (laughs) So I was out there with my, like, little, you know, those dishwashing scrubbers, like, just scrubbing my wall for 45 minutes, thinking, what the hell am I doing with my life? Um, and that was when I said to them, I was like, guys, I can't, it's, it's a lot to film at home. Let's just, let's put this on hold for the minute and let's hope we can come back and, you know, do it in a proper studio. And when I say proper studio, I mean, just a green screen in a boardroom, <laughs> but that's so, still better than home. I am interested in what you think the work-life balance argument will be coming out of what we've just been through because at the start of this there was a great deal of optimism around the idea that this is going to revolutionize the way we work forever and nobody's ever going to go to an office again and the cities are going to be empty and all those high-priced buildings are going to be reclaimed as city gardens because everybody's going to be working from home because everyone wants to stay at home and do their job there do you think that is going to eventuate you know what i reckon there's so many people who are like get me the hell out of my house and the hell back into an office right now um i i don't know i it would it'd be interesting to see what happens but i reckon um that there are a lot of kind of difficulties in working from home that i feel people have done haphazardly because they've had to right but maybe next year people might think a little bit more seriously like okay i worked from home for a bit but my home wasn't a hundred percent set up so what would it look like if my home was 100% set up for work. I think that might be the next interesting question. Because it is... I'm, what if I What if I did have a clean white wall in my yeah. house? <laughs> what, if, what if I wasn't out there with the GIF 
scrubbing it for 45 <laughs> minutes, you know. Mm, this is a very interesting question that I might have to ponder. You know, but like, man, I felt so sorry for especially parents with kids because it was hard enough for me. I'm in a two-bedroom apartment. I don't have any kids. Um, I have a husband and, you know, we were both working from home and that was a lot. And I can only imagine parents who are both working from home, but also their kids were living at home with them. Like, oh, come on, give give those people an office, please, you know? Or I found my, so my sister is one of those people. So her and her husband and four children um, were all in a house together in Melbourne. So like properly locked down for the entire, you know, long period of time, all yeah. in the same house. And because they're a family of six, not even allowed to go to the places where you could have five people. Oh, you know, no. Like, literally limited <laughs> by the idea that their family was too big. They just had to get rid of one of their anywhere children. that you could venture out. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, sorry, yeah. No. <laughs> Whose turn is it in the cupboard, guys? <laughs> Oh, my God. Is it too soon to laugh about what the people of Melbourne went through? I don't know, but that is funny. Having to get rid of one of your children doesn't make the corona count. Oh, God. Well, I think that you're allowed to have a laugh about corona at the moment because can you describe to people uh, what your current circumstances yeah. are? Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm currently on day five of a 14-day quarantine here in um, Sydney, New South Wales. So it turns out I went to lunch last week and I was at the same restaurant as someone who was positive at the time who had coronavirus and so I've been deemed a close contact of that person um no idea who that person is was not the person I was dining with because they've also tested negative uh but I am a close contact nonetheless so I have to actually quarantine even if I get a negative result which I have so yeah miss Christmas this year and I'll be out on the 31st basically what a bummer. I'm bummed thinking about it. I got over it for a minute, but now I'm thinking about it and I'm bummed again. Yeah, well, because it is a tough time to have to do a quarantine. Like in the grand scheme of the world, like quarantines aren't the worst thing in the world and they're for the benefit of everybody. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, you're in a position, you, yeah, you have an apartment and all, all those caveats, yeah. right? But it is badly timed. Uh, you know what? The, the actual, the hardest thing about it was the disappointment um, of missing Christmas with the family. That was, I think once you get over that, you're like, whatever, it's two weeks. I've got everything I need. I've got lovely friends. It's going to be fine. But initially being told, like I wasn't my best self on the phone with New South Wales Health, I will say that, um, amid sobbing and then having to like hand the phone over to my partner just because I was like, I can't, I can't take it, you know. Um, <laughs> that, that was, it was it was just something that I wasn't expecting. And, you know, we had Christmas plans. Mm. Um, and so to be told, I was like, no, you have to be at home during Christmas. And then I, I – because I thought at the time I was like, maybe my partner can actually leave because he's not the close contact. I'm the close contact. And he tested negative. And we actually had been um, isolating apart. So he slept on the couch the night before. And there was this moment where I thought, oh, he could probably go. And then I had this vision of me just spending Christmas – alone in my, in my apartment and it was the saddest thing and I just like I couldn't handle it for about 24 to 48 hours and then I got over myself and it's totally fine you know people have done it for months in Melbourne it's it's totally doable it's just getting over the you know the disappointment of doing it at this time of the year yeah 
Uh, did you, so you did. You said that you did have plans. Do you normally do a, a big Christmas? Is that part of like your year, or is it going to be a you know special thing this year because of the year that everybody's gone through? Oh, I think we would like. Luckily, if if we'd sort of proceeded with our regular Christmas, it wouldn't have been too affected because it was it was always like we have Christmas Eve at my my in laws, my mother in law's place, and that's really nice. It's a sleepover. Everyone opens presents in the morning. It's all very cute. We have a nice Christmas Eve lunch, and then like play a game or do the quiz or. <laughs> <laughs> my god i'm not a very exciting family are we <laughs> well um, that's that, that's basically you've just described what happens at our house for family christmas yeah, as well so that's what happens everyone that's what you do everyone just gets wasted um you know does a quiz hangs out goes to bed wakes up opens presents fucks off that that's christmas and it's delightful and then at my house is christmas eve which is a big lunch um, and then Boxing Day is my partner's dad's place, which is also a really lovely kind of dinner. Um, so, you know, it's a three-day extravaganza. And it's really nice because we will have not have seen, you know, his dad for a while and not really have hung out as um, at his mum's house for ages. Um, yeah, so the fact that that wasn't – is obviously not happening this year. I think that's that's the kind of the biggest bummer. But you're like, whatever, we'll just do it in January. Like, it's fine. It's not mandatory to have it on December 25th. You can have it any day of the year. There's no law, you know? Well, I mean, if you're religious, there is. They're quite particular no, about the details right. of it. But for the I, rest of I us... Did, oh, my God. I actually literally <laughs> forgot what Christmas was. <laughs> I mean, they do I have Christmas totally in July forgot. and all those sort of things. Oh, so shit. we understand totally you can forgot. play with the concept, but <laughs> technically the birth of the baby G. So I totally forgot about Jesus. I did. I apologize. Um, no, happy birthday, Jesus. Apparently cannot be moved from December 25th. That is the day. Um, but, you know, the family and the celebrations can. So that's all. Yeah, we're doing ours mid-January anyway, uh, regardless oh, of COVID. what's happened with you? Are you still – you you guys still well, doing Christmas or – so, well, basically, so I've been in New South Wales, have not seen my family who are all in Victoria since everything got locked down, haven't had an opportunity, haven't been able to travel since. And so the first time that I will see them will be mid-January. So we decided to do it all mid-January just so we could have some time and be away from everybody traveling and all those sort of things. But this recent lockdown situation in Sydney got me a little bit panicked that, I that you know, what, what happened if it got bigger than... At the moment when we're recording yeah. this, it looks like they're starting to you know, contain it. It doesn't look like it's going to be the massive outbreak that it potentially could have been. So I think by mid-January, I'm still going to be okay to hopefully, you know, be okay to travel and see the family because I haven't seen them since my grandmother died. So I haven't, you know, given my mum a hug since her mum died, which was like in March. So, yeah. Oh, man, it'll almost be a year. Oh, dude, I really hope you do get to go and see them. Yeah, me too. Like, I mean, a lot's changed in everybody's life since then. I told you about my sister. My brother, he's got, you know, he split up from his, you know, previous partner a few years ago now, and he's got a new partner, and she's moving in with her, like some of her kids. You know, they're going to have a blended, you know, family, Mm, and all mm. that. All that's kind of happened, and they're just sort of getting on with life. And I'm like, yeah, I'd like to go and come and see some of that stuff, but have not been able to cross the borders at this stage. Oh well, it'll just be a like sweet reunion when you can. It just yeah, that's you, what you I know, think too. Get to catch up on on the last twelve months. Yeah, yep. 
Yeah. So, um, but we're not doing anything for Christmas. We're very, I, I live in a relationship where uh, I, I like Christmas and my partner is not into Christmas at all. So mostly we don't really do a, like a Christmas Christmas, like, you know, oh, do despite you do the fact that, well, not, no, not really. We won't. We might exchange some presents. We may exchange presents. I mean, who doesn't but... like Christmas? Oh, this is well, unusual to me. Yeah, well, not I. I do, but I've been willing to give up my love of Christmas. I occasionally, like, we'll sneak a Christmas movie behind her back. You know, like <laughs> if she's on a really long phone call, I might just like dip into "It's a Wonderful Life" or something. You're <laughs> you just know? like watching Die Hard in the broom closet, just, just hoping she down, doesn't see you. Down You're doing in the, the most clandestine the, thing. The door locked. Where have you been? <laughs> You're you're watching Miracle on 34th Street. (laughs) Just crying. I come back with red eyes. She's like, you have been watching Christmas movies again. I know that look. You've discovered the true meaning of Christmas. You know, my partner's a bit like that, actually. He he hates the whole, like, secret Santa because he just thinks it's a chore to then have to go and buy gifts for people and try and work out what they like and then actually have to go and get it and then wrap it. And, you know, he's like, who cares? It's just adding more things into the world that people don't need. He's very kind of um, pragmatic about it. But I mean, he makes a fair point. I think point. there's something nice about the ritual. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. Rituals are important in a way. You're looking very concerned at your computer screen. Was no, that no, a, it's, it's is this still recording no, or anything like that? We're back. <laughs> yep, I'm, I'm seeing that red, the red light's still there. We're back. Yep. It was just Siri who's like probably just been spying on me. Oh, it's back. What I love about this new world that we're living in is that you've got to see everybody's concentration faces. Because at yeah. some stage during every Zoom call, somebody has to like bring something up on a screen or concentrate on like re-establishing yeah. something, and there's just no way of doing that without getting your concentration face on. So you know now what every single person looks like when they're trying to work something out. That's also my sex face, incidentally. Right. Well, you know, sometimes that requires con- concentration as well. You know, it's actually, it's not an angle that you would normally be be privy to, right? Like, that's not how you'd normally look at people. They don't use that face when they look directly at you because they're talking to you as a human being. But via Zoom, that's that's an unusual angle. I mean, if somebody you were talking to in a normal conversation suddenly just, like, you know, thrust their head towards you, because it normally comes with some, because there's something on yeah, the yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, always yeah. some head movement towards the screen and then yeah. just peered at you with a look of, like, disappointment or confusion <laughs> in the way that you get on Zoom calls. Yeah, it'd be confronting face-to-face. It would be confronting face-to-face, totally. Yeah. Um, so how have you been spending your time in quarantine then? Um, well, I downloaded, um, several thrillers, several page turner thrillers to my, to my Kindle. I've made homemade peanut butter. I, which is so easy, by the way, it's literally just process. It's peanuts in a food processor. Like it's amazing. It blew my mind that the peanuts turned to that texture. Anyway, there's a hot tip for you out there listening. That's how you make Is there not butter. some oil in it though? No, is there man. oil? No, there's no oil. You don't have to put oil in peanut, but like, they say you can put peanut oil. I did not put any peanut oil and they turned into, it just turned into like this smooth spread. Unreal. Anyway, they're, and they're the interesting things that you get up to when you are forced to stay in your home for 14 days. 
Um, but in March, when all of this stuff went down, we actually bought a treadmill and an exercise bike um, and a deep freezer, which has come in very handy now. So I was like on the treadmill yesterday, just like in my skanky underpants and my tiny hand weights. <laughs> just like... <laughs> I'm like, fuck it. No, if I have to stay in this house, I'm just going to do whatever I want without any decorum. And whoever looks up at this balcony, it's their fault now. It's their problem, not mine. <laughs> yeah, there is something that I, and I mean, again, I don't mean to make light of you know something terrible that other people have gone through that has been really hard for them. But it's part of me that would have loved a 14-day quarantine. Like a proper one, like a one where I just like was locked in a hotel room. Like I'm talking more sort of coming off an international flight or something like that. You're just in a hotel room for 14 days. I know for a lot of people that would be an absolute nightmare, but I think for me, I'd find a lot to recommend that experience. Look, there's something freeing about it, right? Because you just, yeah, you can't leave. You can't leave. So everything that you, all of the FOMO goes. um, And there's something really nice about just being brought things. Like I ran out of batteries just before having to record this on my microphone that I'm recording on now. And I realized that you don't realize that you need batteries until you're there looking at the recorder and you're like, shit. So I had to like call my mate who lives up the road. I'm like, Olivia, can you please <laughs> deliver me some batteries? And then she came and brought me batteries. I'm like, this is, this is good life. Good, good, good quarantine life. <laughs> And everyone's just been so nice. Like we ran out of coffee and we have a mate who works down the road who like was like, I'll get you coffee. Went to the coffee shop, came back with like a bag of beans. Um, Susie, Susie Yusuf, who also lives down the road. She does a project. um, She's a comedian. I'm sure you guys would know her. She's the best. She just like rocked up with some homemade Rocky Road. Susie Yusuf has been a previous guest on this podcast. Yeah, totally. Yeah, she just showed up here, have some Rocky Road. My friend Beth just sent over like a massive flagon of rosé. Like I'm talking three litres of rosé. <laughs> I'm like, girl, I'm only here for 14 days. When am I going to drink this? Um, it's a lot of rosé. It's a lot of rosé. It's just, it's been so nice. I got flowers. I got flowers sent from a mate in San Francisco. Right. I'm like, you're in America. I need to send you flowers, not you send me flowers. Um, but people have, people have just been so lovely about it. This is what's like, I'm like, wow, I'm really, I'm just touched by everyone who's like happy to just drop in if and when um, we need them. And now it's like, you know what? I'm going to be less of a cunt. <laughs> 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 I mean, I don't think that there is one person in the world who at some stage over the last 12 months has just gone, maybe yeah, I should just be less of a cunt. That's been my great learning of 2020. It's like, you know what? I am going to be less of a cunt next year. By God, I'm going to try. Because, you know, it's it's actually been really nice hearing from all these people. Yeah, okay, okay. So literally do you think – I mean, firstly, define what your definition of, like, you know, <laughs> that word is in relation to what you were just talking about. And, like, in what ways does you, does you being a cunt manifest itself and in what ways are you not going to be one in 2021? Oh, I think just I'm, – I'm just going to be more aware of people's um, – 
like personal situations and just probably try and reach out a little bit more because I often think like oh people are like no news is good news you know if you don't hear from people they don't hear from you it's fine you know you don't need people to reach out to you necessarily but actually when they do it's it's really nice and especially the ones that you don't expect to reach out when when you get a call from someone who's you know you haven't heard from in ages who's just there to check up on you you're like oh that actually makes me feel really nice and so I'm like, maybe I should, you know, share in people's joy and grief a bit more. That, that's what I meant by like, because usually I'm like, nah, that's fine. They're happy. Good for them. They're, they're sad. Bad for them. <laughs> I just. <laughs> I've acknowledged what you are. Yeah. Is that not enough? Yeah. And now I will um, continue with my life. But, you know, it yeah. might be nice to just stop down and, and share in people's joy and, and also their pain a little bit more. Okay, so what you've said does fill me with some joy, which is firstly, I think that you can tell a lot about the person by, you know, what their friends do for them when they are in a time of crisis. And this is quite a delightful crisis because you get the benefit of like being a person, you know, in quarantine without the negative of actually having like a horrible terminal disease. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like, I don't even right? have COVID so, as far as I know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you get all the upside, like all the compassion and support and all these things. But really, you're just sitting around at home for two weeks. I've sat around at home for two weeks and nobody brought me shit. No, I absolutely don't deserve this. I, I 100% yeah. concur with that. Yeah. I am completely you just undeserved. You happened to go to lunch at the right place yeah. and now you've got this brilliant existence. This has totally changed my attitude about quarantine. I almost don't want anyone to know because I just, you know, people have been so so lovely in their outpouring of sympathy and like you know you're doing a great thing for New South Wales hang in there which honestly I think is I think I'm doing a very average thing because I would like to think that your average person would just follow the rules you know I'd like to and I and I think for the most part they would like I, I do think your average person if they were told hey you're a close contact you have to quarantine for sure they would I'd like to think they would anyway. I, d- I don't think that – I mean, I think if you look at the evidence of how Australia has reacted to this, you, you couldn't come to any other conclusion. Yeah, right, The reason yeah. that Australia has had a reasonable level of success, despite the complaints about various you know levels of the way that it's been gone about in different states and different jurisdictions and all these sort of things, the success that we've had in this country with this disease could only happen because most people clearly, when faced with this situation, have done the right thing on behalf of other people. Yeah. And I guess... It's funny, you know, we, 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 there is some dialogue obviously around the discrepancy between how Australians see themselves and what we're really like. You know, that idea that we see ourselves as wild and free and anti-authoritarian, but we're like essentially a nation of cops and dobbers yeah. and we're very happy to be so. <laughs> cops and dobbers, that's, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, we, we do have this perception of Australians as like, you know, uh, police hating larrikins who stand up for the underdog, like the Ned Kelly stereotype, right? Um, but man, if Ned Kelly was your neighbour, like for sure you'd dob on him at this yeah. point, wouldn't you? Like <laughs> hundred people in the neighbourhood would have dobbed him. In. Yeah, yeah, like like Ned <laughs> Kelly's getting fined one hundred percent. Yeah, right. 
The Glen Rowan hotline would have been ringing yeah. off the fucking hook. The, the whole just Kelly going, family, There's this idiot next door. He's got like a big tin hat. <laughs> he's up to absolutely no good. I'll tell you where he's going to be. He was masked, though. I will give him that. Yeah. Protective clothing. Didn't cover his mouth, though. There's no point wearing this whole tin thing if you've got <laughs> yeah, to slit where the mouth is. I know. That's the main bit that you're supposed to cover. Didn't Brett Sutton... God, I love this so much. I hope I haven't made this up or like had a mad dream about it. But I remember Brett Sutton going, I want everyone to wear masks. I would prefer if everyone, if there were people who wore like masks and nothing else. I can't remember what the exact quote was, but he said something along the lines of like, as long as you're wearing a mask, I don't care if you're wearing nothing at all, nothing else. I just thought that was so funny. Like in Victoria, it's perfectly, it's encouraged, in fact, to just like cover your mouth. If you're going to cover anything, doesn't have to be your peen or your butthole, just your mouth, mate. That's all we care about. But I, but I heard, and maybe I'm wrong because I didn't keep up to date with, you know, and there was many things that were true and untrue about this disease. And I think many things that in retrospect, people will say, you know, there was a period of time where you weren't going to touch anything metal because it was living yes, on true. metal for six weeks and all these sort of things. And it turned out that wasn't the case at all. And it was, you know, so wasn't, couldn't it be transmitted by farts as well? Like, isn't, I believe it could be because it's still... It's an airborne disease. So at the very least, I'm just saying in a technical sense, (laughs) you want to cover your mouth and your butthole. That's what I would. You can have your junk flapping about, but you you need. Can you imagine if it was actually transmittable by farts? Like that would be amazing. You know what? I'm going to Google COVID and farts and see what I... We'll see what horrible thing comes up on the internet. <laughs> how could you? Um, here about, we go. I mean, um, how could you stifle that? All right, here we go. Uh, oh, here we go. All right. Breaking, breaking new this science is, here, people. Breaking science. This is from uh, Forbes. So let's. Uh, he's a healthcare writer from Forbes. His name is Bruce Wiley because he's obviously had to go with. His- <laughs> He's got to, got to whack that Y in the middle so he doesn't constantly have to go, yeah, 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 I know. I know. I've heard of him too. My name is Bruce Lee. I am Bruce Wiley. <laughs> so Bruce Wiley. Uh, all right. Norman Swan asked on a recent Australian Broadcasting Co- Corporation podcast, can farts transmit the COVID-19 coronavirus? All right. Here we go. Uh, any possible link between farting and the tr- transmission of COVID-19 could be relevant because that's what people do. Yeah, no, we don't need all this, you know, preamble about people farting, mate. I just want to <laughs> get to the facts of whether it spreads the disease. Yeah, estimates to the number of times healthy people fart per day. Okay, let's have a little guessing game here, Chan Fran. What do you think <laughs> is the average amount of times a healthy person farts per day? According to this Forbes article. Uh, um, I reckon like five to ten. Five to 25 times, apparently. Oh, five to 20. Who's out here farting 25 times a day? I reckon protein shakes and stuff come into that equation. So you can be on a healthy diet, but you're also knocking back too much protein because you're going to the gym or whatever. Yeah, That's really yeah. going to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> 
Okay. So, uh, all right, come on. Uh, but, but, uh, uh, all right. Yeah, I mean, mate, this guy has clearly had all these things to like write about farts for so long and has never had an excuse. This is like this is a it. thousand words on like farts. <laughs> but I just want to know um, if they actually cause corona. See, this is why you need okay. the I'm, BuzzFeed list of farts and corona because you'd just get a top 10 wouldn't you like yes farts cause okay. corona no they don't cause yes. corona. that's all we need okay i'm gonna say at this stage inconclusive all right there's no evidence to suggest that coronavirus is transmitted by farts i'm happy to put my name to that statement yeah dr norman swan has speculated about it and that started a lot of conversation but I think Dr. Norman Swan had a lot of late time to feel early on. Like he was doing a lot of podcasts. Eventually, you have to speculate on something just to fill the 20 minutes. You know, it's like, Jan, it's not always big news every day. You've still got to do your podcast. No, we did have a lull there for a period of time, didn't we? Which is probably when the fart speculation crept in. Uh, Anyway. Sorry, I I got I got distracted by that. Um, so, do you think that what we've gone through as a you know this experience of twenty twenty will fundamentally change the way that people interact with each other, or do you think that already we're seeing a rush back to you know perceived normalcy? I think it'll definitely change the way that we work. Um, it changed the way we interact with each other in a personal sense, like how you would with your family and friends, you mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, in any way you want to, you know, interpret that. But I think, you know, starting on a, you know, on a sort of minor level like that, how, how will it affect the way, you know, you respond to people that we, when we see people, will we still hug and kiss and, and shake hands? Will we crave, you know, being in rooms with, you know, crowds of people again? Or um, yeah. will we, you know, still come with some sort of hesitancy? And then just on a more, you know, broad way of looking at society does this fundamentally change the things that we think are important and the structures that we had before is this like a an evolution and a revolution in the way that we see the world answer all those in one sentence (laughs) 25 words or less your time starts now (laughs) now you know what i was watching um the bridge nordic a little bit of nordic noir there for Mm -hmm. uh your evening and this was filmed in 2011 and I was watching it with my partner yesterday and there was a scene in a club and it was like a packed club and everyone was super close to each other and the music was pumping and people were like leaning in to talk into people's ears and people's faces. And my, my partner was sitting next to me. He's like, oh man, he's like, all I can think is about how un-COVID safe this is. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you're totally right. It's just like these environments where that would have been so normal however many years ago and now just things that like definitely seem a little bit foreign now. And like I don't know if I'll ever go to a crammed club again, partly because I'm like way too old, but also because it's just it's 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 a thing that just hasn't been a part of my life at all for probably the last few years and definitely the last year. Like I haven't even seen it on TV, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't even been part of the kind of consciousness. So I wonder if those crowded places will just be, end up sort of being a thing of the past or whether there'll be some kind of like revival of people who miss having that closeness. 
I don't know. I, yeah, and I don't know which of those things is going to be the case. It's probably going to be some settling between the two, much like it's going to be with you know, working from home and working in the office and all those sort of things. It's probably not going to be black or white, one or the other. It's yeah. going to be a combination of, of, of both. But do you think that our natural impu- impulse as human beings to be together is more powerful than our worry about, uh, you know, the, the, I guess, the dangers of that? Yeah, I reckon. I reckon we do have an, an impulse to want to be. No, I mean, corona, coronavirus is one thing, but, you know, people always find a way to be together and to form relationships and community. I feel like that's something that I'm, I'm definitely thinking about more this year of the people that are actually around you and the community of people that you have if you do end up in a bind. Like I'm stuck in the house right now. If I need something, my mum, who lives, you know, 25 k's away, 30 k's away, can't drop it off. Neither can my sisters. So it's like, okay, well, who are you relying on in this moment? And so you start thinking a little bit more local, I think. Um, That's definitely been an experience for me. And I know just talking to mates, it's also been a thing for them as well. So I wonder if that'll sort of stick. Um, but you know, people have always sort of found a way to, to congregate and to be together, even during, you know, horrible things like war, for example, like, you know, I, I was, I was born in a civil war and, um, in Lebanon in, in, in the mid eighties and the war had been going on for 10 years, but it's, it's amazing how normal life is and how it sort of just goes on. And the most important aspect of it is that you are around the people that you know and love, regardless of all of this terrible stuff that's happening around you. And sometimes even regardless of, you know, the physical barriers between you. And there was no Zoom back then. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Not that I know of. (laughs) And, you know, people always just find a way to, to, to be together. So I do think that there's a, there's a human instinct for togetherness for sure. That is um, far more powerful than anything really. When we look back at this year, and it's very hard to judge, you know, when we're still living through it, it isn't over, you know, when we clock over New Year's Eve, suddenly, you know, all these issues that we have don't magically go away and we move on to 2021. But, but you know, we measure things, you know, by that passage of time. So when you look back on 2020, how are we going to view 2020? How do you view 2020? Oh, it's going to sound so saccharine. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, don't say that. I'm already saying it in my head. I'm like, don't say that out loud. But I, I do feel like it's a testament to so much of humanity having to come together. You know, it's like it's an invisible enemy. You can't point a gun at it. You can't, you can't name it. It doesn't have a face. So you're forced to rely on yourself and on the people around you to, you know, to to minimize it or to tackle it, right? Like it's not so much about who, who you hate, it's about who you're with because there's, there's, no, there's no enemy. So you have to rely on, you know, this side of the fence, on who you are and who the people around you are. Um, and I, I, like, I don't know, maybe it's just because Australia has done really well and I think that there is a general vibe of do the right thing and do the right thing for your community and do the right thing for, you know, your state and do the right thing so that everybody can have a good Christmas. Um, I hope that once the dust settles, and I don't think it'll be for a few years, to be honest with you, like (laughs) once we've all just had a break and are able to to actually take a proper look back with some distance at this year, I hope that we can look back and say, oh, actually humans aren't shit. (laughs) 
people aren't terrible. Some people are. But on the whole, you know, we're actually all right. Um, and, yeah, I, I think I think that would be a great thing to be able to take away. Having said that, the night is young. Who knows, you know, who knows what 2021 is going to bring and what's around the corner. I think that the terrible people get more attention, right? The exceptions to the rule yeah. get more attention. Mm. I do think that in a general sense, you know, when you look at what we've done, there has been a spirit of cooperation and there's been a spirit of people following the rules and all these sort of things. But I do, when I was doing Gruen, I would do this little social experiment. And so when I first started flying to Sydney for Gruen, I was flying on a plane, you know, the place I live, the airport that I fly from, most of the people who fly out of that airport um, are on holidays. They're coming back from a holiday or when I'm flying in, they're flying in for a holiday, right? So they mostly also kind of young people you know sort of 20s 30s that sort of age range even like you know a schoolies crowd at one stage during it so you're talking about people who are predominantly less affected by this disease but not just this disease less affected by the idea of mortality you know the stupid things that i did when i was yeah just when you're in your 20s like i did so many things that are much more threatening to my life than COVID has been in any stage, you know, during the last 12 months, you know. So they have that useful idea that, you know, nothing bad's going to happen to them. And the first week when I went to the airport, I reckon there was 400 people at the airport and maybe 50 people were wearing masks at the airport. But they gave out masks as you were about to get onto the plane. And I would say at that stage about 50% of the people on the plane took the mask and got on mm. the plane and wore the mask. By the end of my 10 weeks up until Christmas, just before this you know, breakout happened, I would say less than 10% of people were wearing masks on the plane. Like it had gone that quickly, you know, from, you know, sort of at least half of the people to, and I don't know whether that's that we just get complacent really quickly or um, that our brains. I thought you were going to say more. No, the opposite. Like people just got to the point where you felt like I've always worn a mask and you felt really like people were staring at you like, oh, no, no, we're over that. That's finished. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if those people will do a 180 if shit hits the fan again, though. Like I wonder if they're just primed for things to get terrible and then they'll whack on their masks or whether they've just decided in their heads, no, it's done, it's over, I've done my thing, we're cool. I'm going to bury my head in the sand completely. Like I, I wonder what that what that is that's getting them to not wear masks. I mean, technically, it would be better to bury your sa- head in the sand completely because that way you won't expose other people to the risk. <laughs> I mean, again, unless it is transmitted by farts, which I'm starting to believe it's not. And I've been spreading that rumour for the last six months. Fake news, misinformation, doing everybody a disservice. Fucking Norman Swan. Should have read more than the headline. <laughs> Honestly, Norman, you've got to think twice about what you speculate on, mate, because they turn into stories and then they end up being spoken about on podcasts a year down the track. <laughs> you've got to think about it. Um, so you've yeah. you've had a year of, uh, particularly with the briefing, um, uh, you know, really kind of getting up every day. It's called the briefing, isn't it? I just had a panic attack that I'd said that wrong. Um, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay, fuck you. Uh, um, <laughs> nah, fuck it with you, <laughs> I like seeing your face on Zoom, though. It just turned like a, a shade of, like, crimson. It did, you um, just did have that blank look when I said it where I'm like, oh, fuck, what have I done? Like... 
Did I get the name? Would not be beyond no, me. No, it's called The Briefing. The Briefing, which is a daily podcast. Um, where it could, You know what panicked me the most is? That I've recently had Tom Tilly from <laughs> The Briefing on this podcast. And I just had this real panic <laughs> that like for like an hour and a half, I've referred to it as the completely wrong name, but he's just been too polite and let me fucking run with it. So there was a lot going on in that slight pause on that Zoom there. There was a lot going on. <laughs> Okay, I see now. I see where that panic's come from. It's tied to it's tied to other things. Um, now I'm sure he would have corrected you if you'd said if you'd said something other than the briefing. I, I'm sure he wouldn't have let it run for an hour and a half with the wrong name for the podcast. But yes, it's called the briefing. It's a daily news podcast. I'm one of the co-hosts along with Tom Tilly, Anika Smethurst, Jamila Rizvi, and it's basically ten minutes of headlines and ten minutes of a slightly more in-depth topic. So it's. It's your hot news of the day. It's the only news you need to know with your morning coffee, with your morning piece of toast. And that started this year. And so um, what an incredible year to have started that. T- tell me a little bit about what the what, what it's been like to have to engage in the news every day in a year like this. Because some people have had the luxury of stepping away from it at different points. But you've yeah. literally had to engage in it every day, you know, during this yeah incredibly historic time. I feel like... I have been engaged with the news every day for about 10 years because <laughs> I've come from a background of daily news and I think when you when you work in daily news and when that's your thing, you are just always on top of what's happening. But working on this show, I think it was um, – it, it sort of – it felt a bit – like the vortex of doom was just shrinking around you a little bit more than what it normally would because it was this year of like we had coronavirus, we had so much tumultuousness happen in the States as well. We had started out with the bushfires earlier this year where, you know, you looked outside and the sky was like red. Um, uh, You know, we had the US election, which was another massive story. And there was a real reckoning, I think, around race issues, um, you know, around um, incarceration in the US and also here in Australia, um, particularly of Indigenous Australians. So there there was this, it was a very big year for news and current affairs and ideas. And like I said, like I, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly new that to me to kind of be engaged in that. But I think it did, it felt, it felt like a lot when you couldn't step away it felt like it started to feel like too much and particularly on social media as well, which I think was just, it was real. It felt really relentless. Twitter, Twitter always feels relentless to me, but you know, Instagram and Facebook started feeling really relentless as well. And these were platforms that I kind of would have gone to as a bit of an escape. And I, I found that they, I couldn't really escape to them anymore. Um, because they were sort of all about what was happening in the world and the news and takes and people's opinions and noise. It just became very, very loud. I actually had to take a break um, from Twitter for a, a period of a few months um, just because it was it was just stressing me out. I wasn't even tweeting anything. Like I wasn't – it wasn't like I was getting involved. It was just – all I had to do was see it and become furious <laughs> – and, you know, and then just ha- go, no, no, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to become angry today. I have to actually kind of just get off this horse entirely. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was always kind of following the news, always in that daily news cycle. But this year, the harder thing I found is actually stepping away from it 
or trying to step away from it or finding those points of release that would have been there in the years past that I just didn't find this year. How does doing a daily news show give you a sense of what stories feel important at the time but end up not being important? Now, one that was a very big important story, you talked about the reckoning around race, particularly in America, but it had we had protests here around Black Lives Matter you know, in Australia during the pandemic, although... You know, Briggs has speculated, and I think, unfortunately, that he's probably, you know, reasonably accurate, that a lot of the people at the protests, if you ask them, were more almost protesting against what was happening in America rather than having a genuine reckoning with the um, injustices that have been done to the First Nations people of Australia. I'm sure there was a mixture of both, Mm. but that, you know, that his speculation is that those marches wouldn't have happened unless people were, you know, captivated by what was happening in America, you know, independently of what has already happened here and what continues to happen here in Australia. And it feels like while that momentum has still continued in America, it feels like it might have dropped off a little here. Am I wrong in that speculation? Mm, look, you're probably not wrong. And I don't think um, Briggs is wrong when, if, if and when he says that, you know, it was what the events that took place in America that were the instigator for what happened here. Um, you know, Indigenous, the rates of Indigenous incarceration in Australia are, I mean, they are among the most harrowing in the world. Um, it really, truly, truly is our national shame. And it's been happening for I mean, I want to say decades. I think it's centuries is probably more accurate. You know, there was a Royal Commission on this in in the early 90s. So it's not like we can't say we didn't know. Um, And, you know, for the most part, there hasn't been a galvanisation around these issues in the last 30 years like there was in 2020. And I think part of that is it is because of what happened in America that did instigate it. I'm very glad that it did. Um, but these things for me, I hope they they must be a means to an end. They cannot be an end in and of themselves. And I, I don't want to speak for Briggs because I don't, I don't know if this is what he meant by it. But I think a lot of times, you know, you get this sort of big push and people take to the streets and they are moved and they want to do something and they, you know, come with good intentions. And then it sort of ends there. Um, and I think it's really important that those moments are a means to an end rather than an end in and of themselves. And when you think of them as a means to an end, it's it's a long road. It's long and it's slow and it's not going to be solved today and it's not going to be solved on Instagram and it's not going to be solved in, you know, um, one one speech or after one event. It's tedious and it's laborious work and, you know, it's the family of Tanya Day seeking justice through the courts and that takes years and that takes money um, and that takes funding and that takes people knowing what's happening here and where the injustice is and I think this year, I'm, I'm really buoyed that people who would have otherwise not really been speaking about these issues were. And I know that maybe they've they, it's stopped and it's dissipated and it will peak and wane. It won't always be at the level that we saw it earlier this year. But just seeing people be curious about, okay, who do I follow? Who do I listen to? Who do I read? Whose podcast do I seek out? I think having people ask that question was a really, really important starting point because I feel like 
in some ways and not in all ways and it's not perfect but in some ways the voices of people that would have otherwise not been elevated were and I really hope that that stuck with people I hope that you know even if I just pointed someone in the direction of one other person to follow I hope that they've done that and that that's been a continual conversation for them, even if they're not necessarily posting about it. Like some of the stuff that I see on Twitter, the stuff that I've really, really taken away has been from people who I've just seen writing things and I haven't responded and I haven't liked it and I haven't shared, but I have gone away and I have thought about it for days. And then I've looked up their work and their writing and the books that they recommend. And then I've gone and I've read those. And that's slow and not public. So no one knows that that's happening. Um, and it's really not for the public consumption anyway. I, I hope that there's, you know, other people who are doing that as well in the hope that then they can join, um, you know, Indigenous leaders really in seeking justice for these issues. So something that's tied up with this is patriotism. And it's been an interesting year for patriotism, I think, because I think that there are reasons that you can be proud of the response as that Australia has had to what has been going on. It has absolutely not been perfect in any way, but nobody around the world has had a perfect response. And our response has been, you know, not too bad in a lot of ways. There's been a whole bunch of things mm. that you could be very proud of. And then that could reflectively be a little bit of, I'm proud of Australians, right? Like I'm proud of the way that we as a nation have responded to what is going on. And then there's that added aspect that it has come with border closures. So there's genuinely been a cutting us off from the rest of the world and, you know, something that we'd love to be able to do in Australia, which is look down our nose at the rest of the world and think we're doing things better than the rest of the world. Good if we had that sort of pride around our climate policies, but it turns out that we just, we want to be proud of some things, not everything, you know? We've let that one go. You know what? We're good at cricket and we're good at COVID. Okay, we're not so good at climate change. Yeah, come on, that's like two out of three C's. Yeah. Chill out, rest of the world. But so there has been patriotism and then there's January, as we come into January and we talk about you know, the relationship with the First Nations people of this country. Of course, the big thing that rears its head is that, you know, over the next month, there is going to be editorial space and, you know, left and right and all sorts of dances around January 26th and whether, you know, they should change the date of Australia Day, whether Australia Day should even exist in the first place. There's going to be culture wars played out out loud aplenty over January as there is every time um, around. I know that you have like, you know, some interest around and, you know, how patriotism can be weaponized. So how do you feel yeah. about this year in relationship to, you know, pride in the nation, patriotism, and, and I guess, you know, to continue that conversation about our First Nations people into, you know, the conversations we're going to have in January? Oh, man. Look, first of all, I, I think the date should change. Um, I, I don't know what it should change to. I don't know. I, I, haven't, I haven't thought too deeply about that one. My hope is that we mature we have a reckoning into who we are as a country we decide that we are going to become a republic we become a republic sometime around late jan early feb and then that's australia day 
But this is a very long-term plan that I just made up now. So I don't know if it's going to come, if or how or when it'll ever come into fruition. I think that um, Republic Day's always been the easy solution, right? Like, you know, we were a new nation, you're born again, you pick a date, it's Republic Day. That makes sense to me. Yeah. But over the years, I've started to think more that if we could genuinely have a meaningful treaty with the First Nations people, mm. that like Treaty Day... The, the signing of that treaty in whatever form, like proper form it is, might be something that we could, yeah, go, we're, we're starting fresh. This is our new date that we're going to celebrate. Yeah. And, you know, when I say become a republic, it's like that is the culmination of maybe decades of work that we still need to do. Oh, so shit. I, I, <laughs> are you out of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> Just when I was making a poignant point. I said, oh, shit, to both, which was, I was like, I don't have any coffee left. And it's like, it's going to take a long time. I'm going to need some more coffee. Do you want to go make, a, make, no, make no, some no. more coffee? It's all good. No, no, no. Um, it's too late in the day for me to be having another coffee. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Yeah. You were going to say that the yeah. Republic will take generations. <laughs> Yeah, I, I well, the the republic that I think we need to have. I don't think we can have a. I don't think we can become a republic in a in a in a haphazard, or you know, very sort of um, fast and meaningless kind of way. I think we really do need a reckoning into who we are as a country, who we are as a people, and really a, a, a good hard look at not just our history, but the ramifications that our history has in the present um i think i think we haven't done that yet and i i would like to think that we have the maturity to be able to do that i don't know if i'm right i'd love to be right on that point but so far i haven't been proven very right so i think in order to become a republic we, we really need to do that and and we shouldn't become a republic unless unless we do the work to get there um but I totally agree that, yes, Republic Day is a good day and the tr a treaty with Indigenous Australians kind of falls into the process that I think we need to go through before we can even really consider becoming a republic and what the Republic of Australia would look like. But, you know, I it's, it's such a strange place for me because I, I was an Australia Day ambassador for um, a, f a few years ago um, and one of the things that you you have to do as an Australia Day ambassador is is go to, you know, they send you out to one of the local councils and you give a speech and you kind of partake in whatever's going on there and then you hand out certificates to new Australian citizens. And for me it was, you know, I accepted that offer because um, I thought my parents were going to be in the audience. I invited them to come to the council that I was handing out the certificates at because 30 years ago they received their Australia, their Australian citizenship certificates and it was actually a very special moment to have that come full circle and 30 years down the track they are in the audience watching their daughter hand out citizenship certificates to other Australians, to other new Australians who are going to be starting a life much like they did 30 years ago in this country. So there's, there is poignancy there for me in celebrating Australia Day as someone who is a migrant into this country. 
Um, and look, I'm not a fan of the trope of grateful immigrant. I think that there's um, a lot that is wrong with that perception that immigrants should be grateful for what they're given as though they're always on the outer, they're always immigrants, they're never Australian. Um, I don't I don't buy that entirely, but I do think that there is an element of gratefulness that really anyone has when they leave a situation that is untenable and dangerous and in some instances actually quite a horror show and come to a country like Australia. Um, so I've, I've, I, have a, I have a lot of mixed feelings about the day and I have a lot of mixed feelings about, you know, the celebration of Australia and of being Australian. Um, and it's funny, I, I remember getting asked by someone, oh, it's like, oh, are you, are you not proud to be Australian? And I thought, I'm, I'm both, I feel both pride and shame at the same time. I'm proud of some aspects of it, but I'm deeply ashamed of other aspects of our country. And I say both of those things with love. I don't, I don't say that I'm ashamed of Australia and then kind of walk away. It's, I, I say it because I think that it can be better. You know, I, 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 I look at that kind of deep shame that, that, that part of our history sort of represents for me. And I think, okay, I'm looking, I'm staring into that because I have the belief that we can be a better country by actually acknowledging what happened in Australia, you know? Um, so yeah, a lot of mixed feelings <laughs> and, and patriotism. Look, I have to say like, I, I'm on the, the, the receiving end of, of Aussie patriotism, or, or I will say the being on the receiving end of the dark side of Australian patriotism is not fun. It's really not fun, you know, and that is, as, as you know, and we've talked about this before, something like the Cronulla riots and, you know, my background's Lebanese and like we, we, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but, you know, seeing somebody holding up a sign that says, fuck off lebs, that's not fun. You know, that, that actually does stay with you. Like, I'm not over it. How am I not over it 15 years ago? But I'm not over it, you know. Um, so I'm very wary of that kind of patriotism just because I know what it actually feels like to be on the receiving end of the dark side of it. And I know that a lot of that just starts stirring up around Australia Day. And I'm like, man, I don't, that's, that's not a vibe that I'm into. Um and, and I think it's so simplistic to say, oh, well, then, you know, you don't like Australia or you're ashamed to be Australian. Or you don't. It's just like it's it's far, far more complicated than that. You know, like we should be able to look at Australia for its beauty and its terror. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Like even that idea of framing it in that are you proud to be Australian? Because this is something I wrestle with as well, because there's no doubt that like this country has provided to me a myriad of brilliant life opportunities. So I'm grateful to Australia, 
But does that make me be proud to be an Australian? Like, I like when we win at the cricket. I enjoy that. Like, you know, like mm. I, I get some. I'm like, oh, that's an Australian doing well on the world scene. Yeah, there's some sort of pride there. But mostly, you know, when it comes to like the you know, the fact that we have like some sort of safety net that I've been able to, you know, have a career here, have a good way of life, you know, all these sort of things are things I'm grateful for rather than being necessarily proud of. Um, mm. and, and it's the same with... You know, the things that I could not agree with you more when it comes to reconciliation with Indigenous Australians in whatever meaningful way, not in a, you know, like it's got to be in a meaningful way. But the thing that I constantly come to is twofold, which is one that it will make us better as a country. There is no nothing to be lost here. It might be very difficult for us to get to the position where we need to get to, but we will not actually lose anything as a country. Clearly, we will only be a better, stronger, more united, more diverse, more interesting because suddenly we'll have 60,000 years of history that we can actually yeah. be properly proud of, not in a tokenistic way. You know, there's so much... Yeah, Upside. man. Imagine we were proud of that. He's like, imagine like every single Australian felt connected and felt proud of that. Like, what? What a what a thing. You know, what a thing to 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 be a part of or to call your own or to because Indigenous history is Australian history. It's the history of this country. You know. Um, and it's yeah, uniquely. Sorry. Australian. I'm going to go on a rant otherwise. No, it's good. Me. It's it's uniquely Australian history. Like, yeah. as opposed to the cobbled together version of Australian history we have from the last 200 plus years, which is really English history and a bit of American history and some migrant history. But like, you know, we have this like 60,000 years of genuine, authentic, not replicated anywhere else Australian history that could be part of this country. So firstly, only upside. Nothing but upside for us, like fixing this on a moral level, on a social level, but just on a yeah, cost benefit, like we will be in every way a better country from fucking dealing with it. And the other thing that frustrates me immensely about a reticence to do something substantial about it is how open to this reconciliation that people who've had the injustice perpetrated upon them are. Oh, man. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, they are within every fucking right there is to say, fuck you, fuck you to complete and utter hell. We're never going to... But they are so open to the idea of there being some sort of meaningful reconciliation. Yeah. Like the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I don't know mm. if you were following that story, but it was, you know, hundreds of Indigenous leaders who had gathered. Basically, you know, we kind of asked, we, I'm doing we in inverted commas like Australia society were like okay you know tell us tell us what it is that you'd like what would you what would you like to see happen and they were like all right cool we'd like an indigenous voice to parliament there it is in this like really gracious I thought very gracious um you know very very kind statement that they put out that was just dismissed off the bat. Like, nah, that's not going to happen. Mm. Nah, that's like another arm of parliament. Nah, that's just, oh, there wasn't enough detail. Nah, it was every excuse under the book. I remember it happening and I was I was actually amazed at the swiftness with which it was just completely just discarded. Like, nah, no thanks, guys. Yeah, no, nah, we're not going to do that. And you're like, fuck me, man. They are, you know, so open to to wanting to move forward it's like okay this is this is this is what we think should happen this is how we can this is this is how we can make some meaningful change oh, if only there was a way if there was if only there was a way we could make some meaningful change there is literally what we just told you if only there was a way we'd love to help you <laughs> yeah it's like that's that's actually it 
Like that's how it played out, you know? Um, so that would, I mean, imagine, like you say, you're frustrated about that. Imagine how frustrated the authors of that statement would be, you know, who'd been working on it for years and years and who'd finally gotten together and who'd come up with a consensus and who'd said, all right, this is what we feel that we need to move forward. Imagine how fucking frustrated you would be when that is just dismissed, you know? Oh, <sighs> anyway. <sighs> It's um, it's a it's it's a topic that comes up so often on this show, but only because I think that there it's just important that we just keep talking about it. I don't know how to. Oh, I totally agree. But I just think that it needs to be constantly messy. And if people are annoyed by how often that it comes up on this show, there's one really fucking easy way to stop me from talking about it <laughs> literally they put together a there's a statement from the heart they told us how we can stop will anderson fucking banging on about this on his podcast <laughs> you notice he hasn't mentioned marriage equality in 18 months hasn't even fucking come up anymore <laughs> literally off the table <laughs> yeah totally but look i think i think you're right to um especially in the lead up to to january 26 as well um, I, for one, I'm, I'm very happy to see that this is getting more and more attention with each year that passes. Like 10 years ago, there probably wasn't um, a, as many people perhaps protesting as the amount of people that I'm seeing now year on year in Sydney and in Melbourne and the capital cities, but also around Australia as well, you know. Yeah, um, it felt like a big moment to me when Triple J moved the hottest 100. It was way later than they should have. You know, but I think that it still felt like a really big moment where they it gave people who'd already, you know, felt very uncomfortable with Australia Day. Like it, it gave it took it took away one more thing that had hooked them into that specific day and enabled a better mm. conversation to be able to be had. Mm. I wonder if we will like. I wonder what's going to happen if anything when like Queen Elizabeth carks it. Maybe nothing. I mean, we're really not ready to move at this we're, point. We're not, we're not ready. We're, no, we're not ready. That's okay. I'd rather be ready. But, yeah, I guess we're getting Charles. Yeah. Man. I've seen enough Who Killed Diana documentaries to know that he behaved terribly in the decade leading up to 1997. Yeah, I know. But, like, a lot of people have, you know, made mistakes in their past. He's, you know, he's... No, you're right. You Absolutely. You're 100% right. I was, <laughs> I was trying to... No, you're right. They're all terrible. <laughs> like, the whole idea of royalty is a fucking terrible idea. The idea that you're just, like, born yeah, into man, some special so magical family and then you get to fucking rule things. It's the it's stupidest so fucking weird. system of all time. I'm just, like, the more I watch The Crown, the more I'm like, all right, we need to become a republic. Like, we, we, like people, we need to do it. Let's do it. We, I can't have this. We can't have an old British lady be the head of state of Australia. Like, it's it's ridiculous. It makes everything else we do seem ridiculous. It does. Like- it makes, and, like, good on you, Liz. Like, respect, you know. You've yeah. been on that throne for ages. Like, no shade, but you don't have to be our head of state. You can just be the queen of your country. Like, your country's not Australia. Your country's Britain. Good on you. Be the queen of Britain. And I'm watching The Crown and there's like, oh, dude, I'm like dying over the furniture in that house. Like just if I could just have one of those chairs, like even a skanky chair that is in a nothing room that's like sitting by a desk that no one uses is just like, I love them. All that like velvet, 
beautiful ornate furniture. That's me. I'm watching The Crown for the furniture. Well, that doesn't actually surprise me because you have, I mean, you have like quite a, you know. Look at this chair that I'm sitting on right now. I was going to say, it's definitely sort of like, it's not the chair from Game of Thrones, but it's the more comfortable one that they sat, that the king sat on in between having to sit on like a, a really sorty chair that probably was not very comfortable for meetings. This is your one out the back. It's a very ornate. Where did that chair come from? Yeah, it's, it actually came from my great auntie's house. That's where it came from. It came from my great aunt's house and it was in her living room. It was in her formal living room that no one was allowed in unless there was a funeral or a wedding. And then like, you know, generations passed and the house got passed down to someone else and they wanted to get rid of the furniture. And I was like, are you kidding? I was like, you keep those couches there. I'm going to send a truck. I want all of the couches. And it's very much from like the Saddam Hussein school of interior decorating. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you could see it as being one of the things that was ransacked in Saddam's palace, right? Yeah, absolutely. It does. It has some, is it like comfortable? Like, I mean, you're sitting on it for this podcast. So I assume it is comfortable. comfortable. Fuck, it's so comfortable. It's so... I'm leaning back on it now. That's like... it's Yeah, it's the best. It's this, it's this beautiful red velvet armchair. Beautiful, like, brown, ornate kind of wood. Um, it's gorgeous. Can you, can you talk to me about your uh, fashion sense? Because... I feel like you like have an attitude to dressing. So see, this COVID time has been nothing but a reinforcement of the clothing decisions I've made pretty much for the last 10 years, which is, can you wear tracksuit pants out in public? Yes, everybody's doing it now, but I've been doing it at least for a decade, right? You know, sure, I had to pay $250 for the tracksuit pants so that you can wear them out to the shops, but they're still fucking tracksuit pants and I'm not fooling anybody. But so, but you, particularly when you're appearing publicly, I mean, you know, like, you know, in the show business yeah. world, do you tend to frock up for the occasion? Where does that come from? It comes from op shops, man. It comes from secondhand clothes, stores it comes from old ladies that have babe and wardrobes that i'm like can can i can i please just raid your wardrobe because i don't i don't buy or wear new clothes i haven't done so in two years um i reckon we're going to go into a third see how we go if i can sustain it for three years um but i just love because this all started when I was working at SBS. I was doing nightly television, right? And when you're on TV nightly, you know, you need you need an outfit. If not every night wearing something new, you're sort of wearing something new at least once a week. Um, but you're on every night. So your wardrobe kind of piles up and piles up. And after three years, myself and the stylist at SBS were like, what, what, what? Where's all this? Where are all these clothes going to go? Like they end up being these cheap summer dresses that you'd buy from ASOS for fifty bucks and probably never wear again. And you know, TV clothes are a particular kind of clothes. Like they're cinched waist. They're usually like bright block colours. They usually have a bit of a, a striking neckline. Honestly, next time you watch TV, like news and current affairs TV or any kind of TV, actually, just notice what they're wearing, and I guarantee you they will have all of those qualities because there are certain things that just look much better on TV than what they do in real life, right? So all these clothes just kind of piled up and I was like, man. And everyone looks very samey on TV, right? I don't know if you've noticed that, but if you watch like Channel 9 News, everyone's in like a monochrome suit or like a Q dress or something. Um, 
And I was just like, you know what? Let's just, from now on, we just don't buy anything new. Everything is secondhand and insane. Like I want insane levels of clothing and I don't want anything new and I want to take all this shit and I want to swap it for, you know, new secondhand stuff. So that's kind of how it started. And because it was just this vibe of like, you know what, now that we're buying secondhand, let's just get cray and buy some weird shit that we would have otherwise not bought at all. So it just became like 80s shoulder pads, really kind of like crazy textures, um, peplum kind of jackets, really weird block patterns that were like very 70s or 60s that we'd, we'd, we'd gone for this mad shop and bought all of this stuff. Um, and man, it's just so much fun. Like that was one of the things that I really was not expecting to come from doing that experiment was just how much fun you have when you kind of put these parameters around yourself and go, okay, I'm only going to do this and just see how it works out. And it just, it almost just gave me permission to just be a bit insane with what I, what I wore that I wouldn't have had otherwise, if that makes sense. Cause I'm like, well, I have no choice, but to buy this um, insane jacket with crazy flaps on the side, you know, it's the only one in my size. I have to buy it. And it's only $20. I've never had more clothes. Like here I am saying, no, you need to think about your wardrobe and, you know, limit the size and what, like I've never had more clothes, but it's all very circular. Like it comes in and it goes back out and I swap it or I take it back sometimes to like the secondhand store that I bought it from years later and then buy something else. So it kind of just keeps flowing in a circle rather than coming in and ending up in landfill. And yeah, so that was how it all sort of started. And then I, I left SBS very shortly after that, but still maintained the no new clothes thing. And now my wardrobe is just full of clothes that are like so insane that when I have a corporate function, I actually do not have appropriate clothes to wear. Like I have to call up my sister, <laughs> to call up my sister who is an accountant <laughs> and I have to say, Helen, I need to come and borrow some clothes because all of my clothes are insane. Like God bless Jeannie Little, RIP, when she passed away just recently because I was looking at like pictures of her clothing, like the best, the best, you know, that's goals. That is my hashtag goals. But it means that like when corporate events roll around, you're like, yeah, I just need some black slacks and a white shirt, please, um, which I have to borrow. I mean, do you think that people are, you know, if they've booked you for a corporate event, they've probably seen you on other things. Do you think they get disappointed when you come cosplaying an accountant? <laughs> you know what? I don't know. I have a very specific line on my website that says, if you want to book me for a corporate event, please, for the love of God, watch my showreel first. <laughs> so you know, so that you are not hugely surprised and or disappointed when I use the term Zooms debating. Uh, <laughs> in a speech, you know, um, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, I, th I think for the most part, I think they kind of expect a little bit of like, you know, they know, they sort of know what they're getting. But sometimes you do. I don't know if you've done, I'm sure you've done your fair share of corporate events where you kind of, you got to read the room a little bit and like, you know, turn it down, get co cosplay an accountant is probably Yeah, the I mean, there was a it. point in my career where you were getting booked for a corporate function because they had 
$500 or $1,000 and you're the person who was most competent that they could afford, right? So in that situation, you are just an employee of that event in the same way as anybody else is an employee of that event. I mostly now, I don't do a lot of corporate stuff, but I am available, guys, because I have a hideous (laughs) mortgage and no employment opportunities at the moment. So... I'm willing to willing to kind of hang out my shingle a little bit more than usual, but I, if you I, need to borrow my sister's slacks, I let normally us know. I'm will sure only do things it. where they obviously are booking me. Like they know yeah. they know yeah, what yeah. they're buying, so that when I get there, they're not going to be surprised by by what that is, which is a very different circumstance. We should uh, finish up in a minute, but I want to know a little bit more about um, this year, just in a general sense, is there anything that you've learned about yourself in this year that you think will, you know, you change completely, you know, who you are? Is there anything that I have learned about myself in this year? Um, you know, I've probably learned that, um, Having good people around you is probably one of the most important aspects of life. That it's actually probably less about you, like less about me as a person and more about what kind of connections I can make with the people around me. And I've also learnt that it's okay to let go of the people who you don't have good meaningful right there's another word for it i can't think of it but like you know when something feels right it's right it it helps you grow it's it's there for for your nurture and likewise you for them it's okay to let go of the the relationships that don't serve you in that way and it's okay for people to let go of you if you are not the relationship that serves them in that way you know that's totally fine I'm I'm much I'm much happier to lean into that this year than what I've been in past years um and I think that's been really really good there's I can't I'm totally gonna butcher the saying like totally but it's something like be slow to make good friends be quick to lose the bad ones or something like that you know like be slow to bring people into your inner circle because that's meaningful, but be quick to just cut the toxic ones out. Um, and I've thought, I've thought a fair fair bit about that a lot this year because it has, I think it it has really kind of thrown the idea of connecting with other people into the, the, the spotlight a little bit more because you're having to do it um, a little bit more meaningfully, you know, it doesn't come as organically. You're not all meeting down the pub on a Friday anymore. You kind of have to think about it a little bit more. So, yeah, it's really made me think a, a fair bit about, you know, the people in my life and how, how, and actually how I can serve them as much as how, you know, they can sort of serve me. I know that's a, maybe that's a bad word, serve. I mean to be in service of, you know, not to have someone like wait on you, but how you can be in service of someone and, and how someone can sort of be in service of you as well. People. What? What was the high? I like that. I mean, community is the thing that comes up the most when people talk about what the, you know, big takeaway will be of this year. And I've spoken a few times recently about how incredible, like, I mean, Gruen was my work experience and I've done that for 12 years and a lot of the time with a bunch of the same people. But to see the 
growth in the team this year as they took on the biggest challenge we've had in the history. And we're just making a dumb TV mm. show for the you know ABC. But to see each of them have their jobs made inherently more difficult and to see each of them rise to that challenge and rise beyond that challenge to work together and it was I, I i genuinely felt proud obviously don't have kids of my, my own but to see a team that i work with like work so well together gave me an immense sense of of pride and an immense mm. sense of you know, what I knew I needed to sacrifice to serve them, you know, to be in service of them, you know, the way that I needed to behave, the way I needed to encourage, the way that I needed to lead, the way that I needed to conduct my life so that my life was, you know, safe for them to all be able to, you know, be doing their jobs and living their lives. Yeah. It, it, I, it, it was like seeing those things through fresh eyes and seeing people grow in front of your eyes. And I think that, that's been a very cool part of what has happened. What was your favorite memory of 2020? What what was your favorite moment? Do you have a, you know, something you'll look back on and go, yeah, that was that was the best moment. What was my favorite moment of 2020? Oh, look, I I sort of I had one relatively recently actually where I just kind of just sat back, took a little bit of you know, took stock of what was happening around me and was just actually very grateful in that moment. Um, and it was just a few weeks ago, we had lunch at my mum's house, but we had, my, at my parents' house, but we had lunch um, for with my in-laws. So my, my husband, his brothers and sister, his mum, and my sisters, their partners, my parents. Um, and there was this sort of moment where we were all, you know, along the lunch table and it was just this great big spread and a really long table and we you know somebody had sort of like said something funny or ridiculous and you know the whole table kind of just burst out laughing um and I kind of just remember sitting there it was a really beautiful day the sun was out sky was blue my parents had just landscaped their garden um my dad who we have a they have a backyard pond it's like his pride and joy this thing like he's always, he loves that pond and he managed to get it working. So it has this tiny waterfall that was kind of trickling um, after many years of it just being like completely dilapidated. But on this particular day, it was working. And all of these people that, you know, you just love and are in your life and they are your family and your partner's family. And sometimes, you know, sometimes people don't get along with their partner's families and sometimes people don't get along with their own family. Sometimes your own family members are trash, you know, and it's difficult. It really is difficult. But to have that moment where you just look around the table and you're just like, everyone is the best. Like everyone is a wonderful person all sitting around this table and I'm just, I'm so glad to be here and I'm so glad that my husband is my husband and my family is my family and that his family is also my family. Um, that was a really good moment. See, that's a nice way to finish the podcast. You brought that home strong. Yeah, welcome. That was a real Mr. Rogers, you know, down the barrel of the camera. <laughs> really felt like I learned a moral lesson out of this. This is nice. Good. <laughs> Stay safe, Australia. Yeah. Yeah, no, but that was it. That was it. It was a good time. Uh, mate, thank you so much for doing this. I um, wish you the best of luck for the rest of quarantine. What have you got on your entertainment agenda? Like what have you been recommended, you know, like to watch or to consume? 
Scando Noir, baby. Yeah. It's the bridge. It's borderliner. It's yeah. Borgen. It's anything that's happened in Scandinavia in the last 10 years. <laughs> I'm going to get across it in these next two weeks. Don't you worry. Yeah, that's the plan. Um, and if people want to find your stuff and look at what you're doing, where are the best places to direct them? The best place would be to go and subscribe and give five stars to The Briefing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, make sure you're following The Guardian or following me on all social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, for The Frant, which happens, which is a video column that happens monthly. You can find me occasionally on The Project or if you're very patient, maybe 2022 when my book's out. But who knows? You have to have the patience of Job for that one. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I'm going to have you on at least another three times before your book comes out. So <laughs> we don't have to worry too much about plugging the book. All right. You can just schedule me in for the next quarter. Let's not, let's not plug the book for the minute. Uh, well, Jan Fran, thank you very much for doing this. Thanks so much, Legend. Legend.